Welcome to Inspired by Purpose. Each week, we roll out episodes of successful, purpose-inspired entrepreneurs to inspire and empower you. My name is Dr. Ozzy Jankovic, and I believe that purpose is what inspires us to make our greatest impact. I'm so grateful that you're here. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I'm so excited and so honored to have Dr. Ellen Vora on the show. Dr. Vora has had an impact on my life personally, and I have to say that following Dr. Ellen on Instagram and reading her book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, has given me so much hope and so much help getting through my own mental health challenges over the last few years. And I really credit her for my being able to get back to doing the work that I love so much. So Dr. Ellen Bora takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, and that means that she considers the whole person addressing problems at their root rather than just prescribing medication to suppress symptoms. She really takes the whole person into consideration. She focuses on everything from physical help, sleep, nutrition, digestion, thought patterns, relationships, and community, to the connection with nature, creativity, and the one that I love so much, which is purpose. Dr. Vora attended Columbia University for medical school and received a BA in English from Yale University. She's a board-certified psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. My own journey being diagnosed with depression over 25 years ago has taught me so much about mental health and well-being. I learned firsthand how important Dr. Vora's approach is. And in recent years, following her and especially reading the book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, I've been guided to get the help that I need. I think listening to this episode will be enlightening for you, whether you're having challenges with mental wellness or perhaps someone that you know, there's so much to learn from Dr. Ellen in this episode and of course from her incredible best-selling book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. Before we get into the episode, I also want to let you know that there are more episodes coming out around the topic of mental health. I have Dr. Edith Eva Ager, a 95-year-old best-selling author and pioneer in the field of psychology who also survived Auschwitz as a teen, and she's coming on in a few weeks. I'm also doing some solo episodes related to my journey and what I've been learning so do sign up for updates and to be notified but with new episodes, you can do that at drozzy.co backslash in and definitely subscribe wherever you're listening. I also want you to know that over the past few months, I've been working with purpose-driven entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs to start and grow their businesses. If you're looking for guidance with your business, please, please, please reach out to me directly in an email and we can explore what that could look like and how I may be able to help you grow your business. Whether it's getting started, organizing your time or your marketing, or helping you to get out there and be more visible, work more authentically and with more passion, all of those things I can help you with and I'm seeing incredible results. So do reach out in an email. I'm Ozzy at drozzy.co. 
I want to thank our sponsors for today. If you're a coach, therapist, or solo practitioner, you're going to want to hear this. If you're looking for a shiny new website at a great value, I want to introduce you to Awaken Studio. Awaken Studio offers a template redesign, a site that is absolutely gorgeous. And for a limited time, when you sign up for a new website with Awaken, you'll also receive a mini breakthrough session with me. You can learn more about Awaken Studio at www.awakenstudio.nyc. The second sponsor for today is Thrivecart. If you're currently using ClickFunnels or SamCart or one of the other monthly subscription models for checkout and marketing, you're going to want to look at Thrivecart. It's a one-time fee. It is incredibly reasonable with lifetime value, and it can help you if you're looking for a friendly solution to make landing pages, easy checkouts for your customers. You're going to want to go visit Thrivecart. You can click my unique link, drozzy.co backslash thrive for a special deal. You can find out more about the highest converting cart on the market. I am a proud associate of Thrivecart and I've used their software to generate tens of thousands of dollars in sales. With nothing further, I am so excited and so honored to bring on Dr. Ellen. You are going to love this conversation. Stick around for the whole thing. I'm going to wrap it up at the end and have a little catch up with you as well. Enjoy. I'm so honored and excited to be here today with Dr. Ellen Bora. Dr. Ellen Bora is a board-certified psychiatrist and the author of the best-selling book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. She's recently been featured in the Wall Street Journal on CNN, Newsweek, The Guardian, Mind Body Green, and One Medical, among other places for her cutting-edge, evidence-based, holistic approach to mental health. Dr. Ellen's approach is one of considering the whole person, addressing the root causes of mental health and imbalance, and optimally, balance. Today on Inspired by Purpose, we're getting into why mental health is actually so much more than mental. We'll be looking at how, in understanding this bigger picture, we can all live and work better on so many different levels. Welcome to Inspired by Purpose, Dr. Ellen Bora. Ozzy, thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. It's such a pleasure. Well, we have so much to talk about with this incredible book that you've put out into the world. You know, we were supposed to do this interview two years ago. And for everyone who knows me, who listens to the podcast, they know that I went through a massive, massive mental health challenge right around that time. And it's just incredible how much can happen in two years, how much Dr. Bora has contributed with her work. And I feel like over the past two years of everything I've been through, I've come to such an appreciation of all of this. And you as well share your story in your work, in your book, and your work actually begins with your story in medical school. Can we go back to that place when you were in medical school and residency and going through your very own mental health challenges? Sure. Yeah, it's always interesting whenever you see people that started with a conventional approach and took a sharp left turn. And it's always curious, like, what made you decide to do that? And sometimes you get funny assumptions around it, like, oh, you thought that there was like a good 
market opportunity or something. And <laughs> it's always, I pretty much anyone who starts to practice in a holistic way, we always come by it honestly, usually through our own experience, getting sick and having the system fail us. And so realizing we have to do things differently. That was certainly my experience. I started off in medical school, I was in crisis and there were two simultaneous problems going on for me. One was my own health and I was really out of balance. I was had polycystic ovary syndrome and IBS, of course, like who doesn't, and wow. ocular migraines and acne and joint pain and autoimmune markers. I couldn't poop to save my life. Nothing was working in my body. And I would go to my primary care doc and my gynecologist and they would say things like, well, you're just stressed or, you know, we'll put you back on the pill and that way you'll get a period again. We've, we've solved the problem. And I didn't have the vocabulary at the time to understand the concept of functional medicine, that it's root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression. But I had enough of an inkling to say, well, if you put me on the pill, sure, I'll get a period, but I don't think we've done anything to address it at the root. And I, it was a real head scratcher for me because I thought to myself, I am the product of about 500 generations of successful reproduction. Like, why did it stop with me? I was probably in my early 20s at the time. Wow. And that's not even to get into the fact that I also was struggling with depression. I couldn't focus. There was a lot going on with my physical health and my mental health. And that crisis was happening in parallel with the fact that I was being trained to treat patients. And I had a real feeling of disenchantment that these 10 years of my life, all this training, all this money, all this blood, sweat and tears, was I really learning a craft that I stood behind? Was it in alignment for me? Were patients thriving or even the better off for having had an encounter with me? And I wasn't convinced of that. It's really powerful what you just said. Were you even studying a craft that you could stand behind? Yeah. So it was a real moment of crisis. And those two things happening in parallel was actually really fortunate because in the process of figuring out how do I support my own body, this gave me tools that I started to use with my patients. And then I saw my patients thrive. And I thought, there is a different way to do this than what I've been trained to do. And then I had no idea how this would all turn out. It all felt like very much a, a mystery of what the future holds. How was I going to bring nutrition and functional medicine and yoga and acupuncture and conventional psychiatry training? How was that all going to come together to help people? And in retrospect, it, it all the story writes itself. It actually makes perfect sense. These are wonderful tools to support someone's mental health, and they all work in tandem really beautifully. But at the time, it felt very messy and uncertain. Wow. So, so when, when were you in medical school? It was 2003 to 2008. And I took a year in the middle of that to do a research fellowship. Okay. So we're going back 20 years to when this began. And you speak about in the introduction of your book, how it took you years to regain the balance in your mental and your physical health. What were those pieces for you? How did those pieces start fitting together as you started learning? There were a number of different incremental steps. And it's worth pointing out, there were also a lot of dead ends. <laughs> there was a lot of effort I put in that did not yield huge results. But the things where I really saw it, it moving the needle and helped me, a big one for me was actually getting off of the birth control pill. From the first day I started it, I suspected it was impacting my mood. 
but I didn't feel empowered to say that, or I would bring that up with my gynecologist, but I would get really dismissed and they would say things like, there's no evidence for that. <laughs> and so I would believe that <laughs> over my own subjective experience. And so when I did finally get off of it, this pit of sadness and overwhelm and tearfulness and volatility that came on when I first went on it just went away. It wasn't my truth. It was a false chemical induced state. Exogenous hormones are very powerful. Of course, anyone who's ever felt a shift in their mood a couple of days before their period, we know that hormones impact how we feel. So when we're ingesting exogenous hormones or taking them in patch form or a ring form, it's impacting our mood and it impacted my mood for a very long time in ways that really altered the trajectory of my life. But getting off of it was revelatory. So that was a big one. Getting off of gluten, which is not for everyone, but this is a big one for me. My mom had celiac disease, so it mm. makes sense that I would have an issue with gluten. And when I cut that out of my diet, I felt tremendously better. And community was the other big one. And I moved out of med school housing during my research fellowship and moved in with roommates <laughs> downtown. And th there's, I mean, one of those roommates, a full disclosure, is now my husband. But yeah. it, so suffice it to say, it was a good fit. <laughs> These were good roommates. And, but my life really changed. I felt like I had entered a universe where people were good and kind and trying to do the right thing and where everyone was rooting for connection. And mm -hmm. so I, I sort of left a very lonely, isolated life and, and entered community instantly overnight. And that probably has had the biggest impact on my happiness. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful how you tell the story about you get to this little apartment and it's, you know, it's, by all means, like not the five-star accommodations you were looking for, but you felt the warmth. And I think it's a thread that really runs through your book. You speak about many different interventions, the gluten-free and the hormones and like all the different alterations in the science. But at one point in the book, you say, you know what? There are some nights where you're just going to need to go out and have a beer and pizza and stay up until one in the morning. And you share something that I love so much about community, which is how you approach hosting in your own home. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the functional medicine approach to mental health at first glance is revelatory and empowering and hopeful because it says if you've struggled up until now, there are things you can do with your diet and lifestyle that can help you feel better. And that's a good moment. And then you start to do it and you wind up troubleshooting and realizing, OK, now I'm like orthorexic and meal prepping obsessively. And so there are pitfalls on that road. And I think we all end up striking a personal balance where it's like, here's the non-negotiables. Here's things I just don't mess with because they get me too out of balance. And here are things where I make a conscious self-loving choice to goof up every once in a while in the name of overall happiness and well-being. So I certainly choose to sacrifice sleep sometimes in the name of connecting with the people I love. And I'm a night owl. I love the way the conversation gets really good after midnight, even though that's not consistent with a healthy circadian rhythm for me. But hosting is an interesting one because once you have a kid, especially, going out is harder. It's more expensive. You need to get a babysitter. It's more coordination. It's tough on the kid to always have to say like, bye. <laughs> and it's tough on the parents. So one thing that my partner and I do to make sure we're still having a lot of social connection in spite of the logistics of having a kid is that we host. 
But when you have a big job and you have a child and a family and dependence on you, who has the time to cook a three course meal, to clean up your home, to make yourself look presentable? It's all too much. And those things end up becoming barriers to social connection. And I don't stand for that. So basically, a lot of times I'll host and people at this point know, they, they know what to expect. I will order takeout. The house will not necessarily be neat and I'll be wearing pajamas. <laughs> and that's You're so cool. You're just so cool. Everyone listening wants to hang out with you right now because that's so authentic. It's so real. You know, I think that as you share, there are so many specifications that we learn about in terms of healthcare and, and mental health care. And yet there are places to be relaxed and let down these barriers. Like you're saying, it's really so refreshing. And I think just on that note, like the real takeaway here is that we all need to give ourselves permission to do this. And, and it's sort of like when we really, when we don't just become automatons reproducing our conditioning, the conditioning that says like, you know, if you have people over, you should cook for them. You should have a neat home. Maybe you do your hair. Like, what are we really fighting for? What are our values? And if the value is I want to hang out with the people that I love and connect and laugh and feel heard, then we have to get everything else out of the way and prioritize that. And so it's just to call into question all of these assumptions that we have of do we need to be presentable? Does the home need to be presentable? Why not just order pizza? And I think that these are, it's, it's really like that's, that's the call to action here is can we re-examine what's standing in the way of connection and is it valid? Mm, makes so much sense. You know, you wrote this book in the time of Corona when anxiety was at an all time high. And it also happened to be the time when connection was at an all time low. So I'm curious to hear from you in a little more depth, what is so powerful about human connection? Who knows? You know, I mean, we are social creatures. If we were doing a podcast for cats, like it wouldn't be the focus. <laughs> It'd be like, do your thing, you know, you're you're hunting alone and that's that's right for you. It's it's such a big deal. What did you see in your practice and what are you seeing in terms of the change now? Right. Well, in seriousness, seriousness, like why connection is so critical, I think this has to do with our hardwiring. And the way I make sense of it through an evolutionary lens is that on that proverbial savanna of evolution, we were not the fastest species, we were not the strongest species, we were the ones that figured out how to cooperate very effectively. And I think it's through this that we prevailed. And so I think it's in our hardwiring that when we feel richly connected, held by community, when we feel like we have somebody helping us out, we help somebody else out, on some level in our DNA, we feel safe. And when we feel disconnected or isolated or ostracized, on some level in our hardwiring, it feels like it's a matter of life or death. And so I think that's why this matters so much. And we're in this interesting moment where, you know, social media, of course, on some level, this has enabled a certain amount of connection. And I don't just say that as a hand wave. I think truly, if you live in a community where people aren't aligned with your views, the fact that the internet can connect you to those small handful of niche people across the globe that are your, you know, this is a, in not the, it's, you know, for lack of a better term, it's less cultural appropriation, like your people, your tribe, as people would say, I think that, that the internet has enabled that, but it is also an opportunity cost. We do also miss out on that energetic experience of hanging out with people in person to go be in the computer and then on the phone. And that comes with 
the endless scrolling, the doom scrolling, the compare and despair, the filters, there's a lot about it that's not necessarily good for our mental health. So it comes with good, it comes with bad. And <clears throat> I think with COVID, I, I think that there's something, especially for the children, that's disconcerting to me, which is a little bit of programming of like to fear your neighbor. And, and I think that that's hard to unlearn if that was the messaging that you got early in like really formidable years of development. And it's the last thing we want to do. And of course, it's understandable why that had to be so. But I think that perhaps we can take some learnings going forward about how do we maintain connection while still prioritizing public health. That's so beautiful. It's really interesting what you say to you about what makes us unique as humans is really our ability to cooperate and to have this connection. So with that being said, in, in terms of the social media that you brought up, how do you as an entrepreneur, I mean, you're a psychiatrist, but now you become a world-renowned psychiatrist and teacher and an author, and you're out there on social media and your Instagram is awesome. How do you strike that balance? How do you not fall into the doom scrolling? Like, what are your own procedures around that? Oof. I'm not sure I have a great balance. I think that I basically, in the same way that I'm okay with not hosting optimally, I'm okay with not being a, a social media influencer, I suppose, optimally. I, I, I know that the algorithm is looking for me to post every day and be really optimal about who knows what, I don't know, hashtags or trending audios and things like that. And I don't have the time or the bandwidth or the interest in playing it that way. So for me, I really use it as a platform to, to achieve a couple things. I really have a lot of ideas. <laughs> I have a lot to say. Instagram gets like 150th of the things that occur to me in a given day. But when wow. it feels like, and Glennon Doyle puts this really well, she's like, she writes when something personal for her also feels universal. And when I feel like there's a message that people would benefit from. And especially if it's not something I think is already being said, so it's an overdue conversation, I will just put it out there. And increasingly I've figured out how to do that without a lot of prep or trouble basically. Cause if I try to have the hair and makeup done or have the lighting right or have perfect Zen silence in my home at the time, like it'll never happen. And so I've now slowly gotten more comfortable with just in the moment, the thought occurs to me, one take, it'll be full of problems and flaws, but it, the message has to get out there. And so in some sense, it's a little bit of a creative outlet because I feel like when these truths don't come out of me, they, they weigh on me, like I need to express them. But I also just really want to completely shift the conversation around mental health. I want people to have more empowerment and more strategies for supporting themselves. And I want people to have hope. Hope is everything. It's everything. And you have given so many people hope. And it's so important that as a creator, you are laying down the barriers to sharing your message and sharing your voice and sharing what's really important. And I'm also curious as a consumer of social media, I don't know if you are a consumer of social media, how do you approach that from a mental health perspective? I really think about it as like crack cocaine. And so I approach it very intentionally because I think that like, I mean, we've all been down a TikTok or an Instagram rabbit hole and you don't feel good afterward. So I really try to keep myself honest and, and at least have some awareness when I'm opening it up 
Do I have a purpose right now? Is this a quick dopamine hit? Is this me telling myself this is resting my brain in between patients? You know, what am I, what am I telling myself? And is it true? And in the Byron Katie sense, is it really true? And and then I and I do try to come to and realize like, wait, I've started scrolling. It's ingeniously designed. Like you can think I'm going in here to check one thing. And then 45 minutes later, you realize like, nope, I went way down a rabbit hole. And the fact that there's no natural stopping place, the fact that the algorithm seems to intimately understand our soul's yearnings, it, it takes us in. And so I, I think it is a mindfulness practice to really be able to, the way mindfulness works is like, let's say you're trying to keep your attention on your breath. And then a nanosecond later, your mind is like, well, what should I have for lunch today? Or, ooh, that interpersonal dynamic with my sibling doesn't feel good. And your mind wanders. And we think of that as being bad at meditation or failing. But I really think that's the gig. And each of those wanders is an opportunity to pull the attention back to the breath, which then strengthens. It's like a bicep curl for that muscle of present moment awareness, which is very atrophied and weak on all of us. So the more we can practice mindfulness, I think it helps us come up for air in a moment of scrolling and be like, wait a second, I just went down the rabbit hole again. Let me catch myself and come back to what I want to be doing right now with my time, with my energy. I love that so much. The idea that you just shared that noticing that you're distracted is not actually being distracted. It's being mindful. Mm. And if you're noticing, you can then come back to your center. That's a great way to capture that. And and yeah, and I think we have to be really careful about how we talk to ourselves in those moments too. Like, I love that reframe that that's actually not distraction, that's mindfulness, if you're catching it, you know? So you're, it's good news if you're noticing it. And then also just to be gentle. Like if, if there is any beating ourselves up or criticizing ourselves in those moments, like that's not helpful. So in those moments, it's shrug. Oh yeah, okay, it got me again. Of course it did. <laughs> and to have amusement, to have a humor around it and lightness that this thing sucked me in and to just bring it compassion and sweetness to ourselves in those moments. I love that compassion piece. So I think it would be really great if we could get into this big idea. I, you've heard this from you a lot and I know how important it is to you. And it's so clear to me as well, how mental health is so much more than mental. And I don't even know why at this point we call it mental health. I think it's time for a new word. I think it's time for a movement more than mental movement. I might even start it. It means that much to me, but I would love to, to get into this with you. Like what is the bigger picture for people who are still under the impression that, that medication is like going to fix our mental health. Why is that not the only answer? And why is this thing that we call mental health so much bigger than that? Yeah. This is really everything, right? Everything. Let's, let's, let's cover everything. So, <laughs> I mean, here's how we've all come of age. And do you know that, that meme that's like, what's a scam that's become so normalized? We don't even realize it's a scam anymore. And in a sense, and I don't mean to call mental health a scam, but here's just to bring awareness to the fact that we have all been conditioned our whole lives, anyone listening to this with a particular framing of mental health, which is that it is due to a genetic chemical imbalance. That's That's been the indoctrination. And it suggests that our mental health exists from the neck up, it's our brain chemistry, and that if we're depressed or anxious, it's because we have low serotonin. 
And it's a nice story. I don't fault the people that really first came up with this. I think that they were really trying to make sense of something. It was all derivative from the fact that certain tuberculosis medications that modulate serotonin seem to create a shift in mood. So working backwards from that, we decided depression was low serotonin. Now in 2023, we have very strong, airtight, vast meta-analyses that have really fully cleared out any basis for the serotonin theory of depression. So what we're left with is that this is now still the story that the pharmaceutical industry uses. And I think it's marketing. It's a marketing narrative more than it is scientific fact. But it makes a case that you're depressed because you were born with a broken gene, you have low serotonin, but fear not because we have a pill that fixes that and it will raise your serotonin and you'll walk away better off. And that brings us into this medication conversation, which is sensitive and nuanced. And there's so much to this. And I'll caveat it by saying, I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medications. I'm not wholly dogmatically pro or anti anything because I've been doing this too long that I've been humbled against all of my dogma. <laughs> and so life kicks you in the teeth and tells you, hey, you were holding onto that idea a little too fastly. So I, I do. I'm not entirely against medication, but I am very in support of informed consent. I think people deserve to know the full story before they take that first pill. Part of that story is that it doesn't seem to separate from placebo for mild to moderate depression. And so what does that mean? It doesn't mean it doesn't work at all. Placebo is actually nothing to sneeze at. It all has an impact, but it doesn't differ from placebo. So if what we're mainly benefiting from in mild to moderate depression is a placebo effect, I would rather have a patient get a placebo effect from something purely benign than something with side effects and potential adverse effects. Because some of the side effects with our SSRIs, our antidepressants, things like sexual side effects, this can really be impactful and life altering. And I don't want to invite that for any of my patients ever. I even think that that's a cost benefit debate when it is likely to be helpful for their depression. But then in severe depression, there is some indication that it's better than placebo. So what's that about? Why does it work? I don't really know. I don't think we really know. And it's something that I hold as it's on the menu. It's one of the possibilities, but it's not my first line for two main reasons. One of the reasons is that to me, depression is not a genetic chemical imbalance. It's a communication from the body that something is out of balance and that can have a physical basis and that it could have a psycho-spiritual basis. And often it's some combination of the two. So when I meet somebody who's depressed or anxious, I wanna know, how are you sleeping? How are you nourishing yourself? Are you inflamed? How are your hormones functioning? How's your gut functioning? All the way to like, are you exercising? Do you have any connection to nature, to the more psycho-spiritual dimensions of life? Like, are you held in community? Are you being of service? Feeling like your life has meaning and purpose mm -hmm. and those are so, all things we can do something about. Because they're so big. So you said, are you held in community? Yeah. Are you being of service? And do you feel like you're doing something that has purpose and meaning? We could pause here for forever because mm. these are so huge. And, and these are huge things. It is interesting how it's almost a backlash movement now, even where we're recording this in the moment where the ink, the sort of potential for AI to change everything very soon is it's upon us. It's happening right now. 
And the more that technology AI has sort of solved for some of the tedium or the labor or the things that maybe did give us purpose, solving problems, or there's like this, this like the power process, we're feeling the ennui of, of not solving those powerful pro problems. And so I think that there's a movement right now. You see people homesteading, you see people kind of like slowing this down and almost defying technology to create labor and problems for themselves <laughs> because it ends up slowing life down and creating some feeling of satisfaction. Interesting, like the slow food movement or the return of like handcrafted goods mm -hmm. coming back to, you know, like moving away from fast fashion, even yeah. just slowing everything down. Like, what are we doing here? And there are always environmental and political and, you know, there, there are all kinds of considerations to all of those choices. But I think part of it is people intuiting that when things get faster, do we actually get happier? Do are our lives better? If we've solved for all these problems and everything is maximally efficient, are we satisfied and feeling whole? So, so you spoke about like these physical markers and the physical causes of what we call mental health, right? That physical basis and the psycho-spiritual basis. When you're working with your patients and when you're advising, where do you start with all of this in terms of like what comes first? Yeah. And I, at some point we'll circle back around to that second reason that I don't always oh, reach for medication. I'm here for it. I'm, I'm here for it. We can, we can finish that thought and then we can move on. <laughs> Dealer's choice. I could talk <laughs> at length about every single thing you're bringing forth. Well, just to close that loop, because that one's brief. The only other reason I'm hesitant to use medication as a first line is the withdrawal process yeah. that I have now been witness far too many times to the experience that some people go through when they get off of psychiatric medications. And that's part of the informed consent. One deserves to know how efficacious this medication is likely to be and what's the long-term plan here. And if you do at some point need to or decide to get off of it, how will that go? What will that be like? And I don't think we've been informing people about that. We've actually been patently denying that there's even an issue with getting off of these medications, but that has not been true or fair. They have a withdrawal process. And so that's like, I feel like a one woman army out here, just like really trying to spread that message. It's, that it's about to go slowly. It's huge, right? Like, why is it that a doctor can prescribe something like Seroquel and not even give any education or information to a patient yeah. or something addicting? And how is that even legal? And, you know, it's the standard of care in certain ways. I'm in trouble for not prescribing it. <laughs> and I think like something like a benzodiazepine, Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Valium, the, you see a sort of dynamic happen a lot where a practitioner will say, you know, okay, I put you on an SSRI and the patient comes back and is it helpful? Shrug, kind of, I'm not sure, not really. And then they're still struggling and they're saying like, give me something that will help. And then the doctor says, well, okay. And I write you for Xanax. And that helps, that's no placebo, but the trouble is it's incredibly habit forming, which is a medical euphemism for addictive. They are not MMs, they are not MMs. And then the patient but comes But they're back. being given out like they are. Yes. You appeared on that documentary, Medicating Normal, and you were yeah. speaking. And I feel like they brought this issue to light so well, how these medications are being prescribed like, like they're, you know, aspirin or M&Ms or you name it, but people are really, really suffering. Well, this is our system. It's conducive to a prescription solution because a practitioner has eight, 15, maybe minutes with a patient. The patient comes in, they're saying, well, everything's hard right now. And they start crying. And the practitioner is like, well, I can't fall behind in my 
very packed schedule today. So I need to solve this problem quickly. And the only thing you can really do in that amount of time is say, here's a prescription for this. And so we don't have the time to do that investigative work of well, what's your body communicating right now? What is out of balance? How can we help? How can I hold space and create a healing container for you? Our, our system's not designed for that. And that's expensive and inaccessible and barely exists. This is really interesting. I mean, it to me speaks to the necessity of democratizing education, democratizing education around these issues. Exactly what you're doing, writing books like this and making sure as many people as possible understand this bigger picture so that when someone does land in the doctor's office and they do get that, you know, prescription for Valium or, or whatever the thing is, they know what it is and they're prepared and they're educated. This is everything. And my intention with spreading this information is not to convince people to go off of their meds. It's like, I wanna catch them at three different points. One is if they haven't gone on a medication yet, I'd prefer to address their mental health issues at the root rather than a Band-Aid solution. If I'm catching them at a point where they are going off of their medication for their own reasons, I want them to know how to approach that safely and sustainably, which like spoiler alert, basically means going so much more slowly than practitioners will recommend. And then if they're in a withdrawal state, I want them to understand that that's withdrawal because we characterize that as relapse. So someone goes off their med, feels terrible and thinks, oh, I must have been more depressed than I realized. I'm, that medication must have been helping me more than I realized. So they go right back on it and they don't realize that that is a withdrawal state and not a relapse of their original problem. So to be really clear, when you talk about, you know, not turning to medication as a first option, are you referring specifically to depression and anxiety, or is this like a broader, more general? That's a really important clarification. I am generally, and I should make this more explicit more often, I'm generally focused on depression and anxiety. I, there's a case to be made for supporting ADHD at the root rather than with medication. It's a, it's a different journey, but I'm really not referring to the psychotic disorders, so something like schizophrenia. And bipolar is its own whole thing. And I'd always thought my next book would have been sort of the anatomy of anxiety for bipolar, but now I think I'm actually gonna address this issue of medication withdrawal. So I'm gonna do that first, but then down the road, I'd like to write the book about bipolar because- you come back to that one, let's have a long conversation. Right, <laughs> so that's a separate conversation. There's a lot that we can do to support it, but that's a, it's a harder, it's a trickier process than, than supporting something like depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So much to talk about here. So we were speaking about where to start and part of this is education around medication, education around what mental health looks like. And then in terms of where you're helping your patients start the, the health piece, like the physical health piece, do we start with gluten-free? Do we start with sleep? Do we start with, you know, creating a, a new community? Like, what happens? What happens when? Yeah, it's great. And every patient's a little bit different, but generally I start with the physical piece and then progress to the psycho-spiritual piece. What, the way I frame it in my book is false anxiety and true anxiety, where false anxiety is, you know, such a triggering term, I realize now, but it's avoidable anxiety. It's based in the physical body and it occurs when something has tripped our physiology into a stress response, which we then subjectively experience as anxiety. So that can be from seemingly innocuous aspects of modern life, a bad night of sleep, an extra cold brew coffee, a hangover, a blood sugar crash. And so I usually start with the false anxieties with my patients 
it's the low hanging fruit and the quick wins. And to me, like if we do all the psycho-spiritual healing on an energetic level, it helps with false anxiety, but sometimes there's just a thorn in the side of a person with the false anxieties. And I think that we never fully heal until we've addressed what's irritating the system. And so I start there and we clear the air. And then once someone's much more resilient in the face of their issues, much more stable physiologically, then it creates this clarity to be able to drop in and attune to our true anxieties, which is our purposeful anxiety. It's not something to pathologize. It's actually not what's wrong with us. It's really what's right with us when we are able to viscerally connect with what's wrong in the world. So this is not something to pathologize. It's really something to listen to and heed. And that's a little different for all of us. Sometimes it's, I know I need to get out of this job or this relationship. Sometimes it's, I'm supposed to be an activist for this cause. Sometimes it's, I need to call my grandma more often. And it really can look a lot of different ways, but it's usually some inner truth that's kind of inconvenient that you've always known, you've known for a long time, but it feels like, ugh, I don't want to face that truth or that would blow up my life. And I don't want to face that. This is so fascinating to hear you speak about it this way, because speaking about false and true anxiety in your book, in no way are you writing off any kind of anxiety. So Dr. Ellen, you're always validating the experience and even how severe something like a hangover can be, right? That false anxiety that's a hangover. But when you speak about this idea of true anxiety and facing these things that are like the inconvenient truths within us, I'm so curious to dig into that. And why is it so hard to make those changes sometimes, those big changes? What is it? Like you mentioned earlier when we were speaking about this fear of isolation, this fear of death, right? Isolation is like a, like a visceral fear of, of, of being cut off from the tribe, being alone. And I'm curious to hear from you if you think this difficulty in listening to the real anxiety or in shifting and making those big changes, where does that come from? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I suspect part of it is that we've all come of age with this emotion phobic culture. So if we don't have emotional literacy, and in fact, if we think that being emotional or being sensitive is bad or weak in some way, if we all, if we start to cry, what's true for almost all of us is that we will first apologize and then, (laughs) and then we'll try to suck it back in and make it as quick and small as possible. And we almost perceive that people will like really applaud us if we manage to get through the cry really fast and without it getting messy. And I think we just fundamentally got that wrong. And crying is not weakness. It's not a problem. It's actually the wisdom of our body giving us a much needed opportunity for a release. And can we actually dive into it? Let it be bigger. Let it be complete. I find in my own life that it's free therapy if I have a good cry. And so these are just some examples of why we don't drop into our true anxiety. We're rushing around. We're never still. We're never silent. We're uncomfortable with ourselves and our own thoughts. We don't cry and we have no emotional literacy. We know like three emotions. We could be angry, sad, or happy. Wow. Uncomfortable with our own thoughts. That's huge. That one right there. Can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot that goes into that. And sometimes I'll just acknowledge, like sometimes this is trauma where just to be still with our thoughts brings up such pain. And then you really want to work with trauma-focused therapy and at the level of the trauma really help bring that to resolution, metabolize it in the body so that it isn't quite so painful to be still. But I think that for a lot of us, 
it's habit. Like we're living in a world that's very climate controlled. We say like, let everything be 71 degrees, never too hot, never too cold. Don't be bored. If you're waiting on a line, pull out your phone and scroll. Like we've really just lost the, we, we have a weak muscle of being able to tolerate discomfort or to tolerate boredom. And so I think it's just something we have to kind of analog style work back into our lives. It's interesting. I think about that a lot. I teach meditation. I use meditation as one of the tools in my coaching. And recently someone shared with me this idea that perhaps one of the reasons why people feel so uncomfortable with their own thoughts is because of shame. Yeah. And I had never really explored that, but I'm curious if that's something, is that something that you see as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, part of what's painful when we're alone with ourselves is all the ways that usually it's messaging we've internalized from childhood. It's somebody else's voice telling us we're no good, we're bad for this or for that. And I think it, healing that starts with recognizing that's a voice that we internalize. That's somebody else's voice. And to even broaden our understanding, to realize that person who was shaming us, first of all, carried their own wounds and had internalized their own shaming language from their caregivers. But also I operate under the assumption like parenting is nearly impossible. It's so hard sometimes. Parents are just surviving. They're getting through the day. And I think parents historically used a lot of manipulative tactics to just survive and get by. Many of them were disenfranchised. They didn't have their needs met. It's just hard out there. So they gave us a lot of messaging that's like, do this and then you'll be a good girl. But if you don't do this, you're a bad girl. And it, it kind of gets, the kid out the door wearing shoes so that you know gets the job done but it does create a lot of inner states of feeling like okay so if i'm not pleasing my mom i'm bad or if i'm not doing that it threatens my attachment to my caregiver and so my very survival is threatened by that so we do carry tons of shame i think brene brown is required reading and it just helps us realize the way i think about it is that shame it's like this heat comes off of it. We don't even want to go close to it because we feel like we'll burn ourselves if we go near it. But if we actually do walk past that threshold, enter it, look at it, talk about it with a trusted person who can really hold space for that and not use it against us in a court of law. Like, you know, I think about this in like a, a relationship where it's like if if that's a truly supportive relationship, friendship, a therapist, something like that, where you can really be honest and vulnerable about here's what I'm not proud of. And then once you've brought it into the light of day, I find that that is garlic to the shame vampire. It's just mm. like bringing it into the sunshine, bringing it into openness. We start to be able to take the charge out of that shame. It's less hot afterward. I love that. I love that idea of being okay with bringing out something, something you're not proud of. And I love your reference to Brain Brown because she talks so much about it's not a weakness to talk about what you're not proud of. It's actually strength and having that courage to, to be honest and bring things forward, I think can can help us all so, so much in terms of the psycho-spiritual piece. We're talking about, you know, being at one with our thoughts, looking for purpose. How do you practice that in your own life? How does that show up for you? Hmm. It's, it's interestingly, I don't know if, if I'm a great example, because this almost fell in my lap, like I was the most miserable med student. And, and in a way I burned out early and that ended up being quite protective for me. 
and people, my peers who are more resilient and better suited to medical training, they made it 10 years into their career as an attending physician before they're like, F this place. <laughs> like I'm fully out of alignment with how this is being practiced or they're feeling so burned out. So they're quitting now. And I kind of quit like days into med school. And I was like, this is not in alignment for me. This doesn't feel true. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel healthy or it's untenable for my own sensitive constitution. And so I had to create a very unique path through my training and in how I practice for it to feel true for me, for it to feel in alignment and bearable. And that has actually been protective because now I practice in exactly the way that feels like the truth. And I'm incredibly fulfilled by the work I do. It's challenging. It feels important. I'm always learning. I'm always changing my views. I'm helping people. It's the best job imaginable. But I, I think about when somebody struggles with that. I had a journey where I, from a young age, perceived that this is a patriarchy and that what we value are masculine traits, objectivity and rationality and being good at math and science. And I stepped right in line. I was like, okay, so that's what's valued. And these feminine traits are what are devalued, or there's a negative connotation, all our words about these. So I said, this is who I am then. I am objective. I'm rational. I'm good at math and science. I'll be smart. I won't be irrational. I won't be all these feminine things. And I really performed that for a very long time. And I think it risked getting me completely derailed with meaning and purpose in my life. And so for me, there was a moment where I had to have a reckoning where I realized I had been silencing and disavowing half of myself. And when I finally was like, wait, this is my cultural conditioning telling me this is not okay. There's just nothing about ourselves that's fundamentally wrong. And I had to start to embrace the fact that I had feminine qualities. I had to embrace the fact that I had a strong connection to my intuition. And rather than see that as silly and irrational and get eye rolls in the room and would get me kicked right out of the engineering program you know like that's what i had to start to embrace and so i i had to shift from my own self-loathing misogyny to a place where i embraced my intuition and that was a critical juncture to be able to let my life be guided by meaning and purpose And I have patients, I have friends who are like, I don't know what brings me meaning and purpose. I don't know what my contribution is. And I think it's helpful if our work feels helpful in some way, meaningful in some way. And and I think that we sometimes lose the plot when we are for some reason disconnected from our inner knowing. And I think our culture disconnects us from our inner knowing because it tells us that that is feminine and weak and irrational and bad. So I encourage most people to kind of like dust off that hotline to the self and honor what it has to say. I love that. I love that so much. I think it ties together the psycho-spiritual and the physical because that's the gut-brain connection, the intuition in the gut. And by healing that, there's so much we can do. So I know that our time is coming to a close. I want to encourage everyone listening to connect with Dr. Ellen on Instagram definitely get a copy of the anatomy of anxiety. If you do not have it yet, it's this beautiful book right here. And where else, where else? I know that you have a newsletter as well. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can connect with you? Sure. If you like being emailed once every seven years, join my newsletter. (laughs) I'm trying to be better about that, but I, I really don't (laughs) send a lot of email. Best newsletter ever. (laughs) Once in a while, I will share some, you know, basically like here's where you can 
learn about these different things. But overall, my life's work is distilled into my book and I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at ellenvoramd and my website is ellenvora.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Nazi, thank you so much. And I so appreciate the insights you bring to this work. Thank you. All right, guys, how beautiful was that episode? I have so much respect for Dr. Ellen and I highly recommend following her on Instagram. You will not regret it. She posts so much valuable content and she really is a source of original information. You know, there's a lot of information being recycled out there, but Dr. Ellen makes a special effort to share things that you're really not going to find in other places that are so relevant for living and working with more mental wellness. I want to wrap up the episode with some takeaways. The first one is considering the whole person. When talking about mental well-being, it is so important to look at environment and lifestyle and what can be done in addition to or instead of medication in cooperation with your board-certified psychiatrist. Um, Really, there's no shame in talking about mental well-being, in talking about mental health. This is something that we all deal with on different levels. And the more that we can have these open conversations, the more we can learn and the more that we can live and work well. The other piece that Dr. Allen spoke about is medication. And she talked about the fact that not all medications are effective and it's really worth exploring other options. She spoke about community and the importance of being held in community. I love how she says that. I love how she talks about it. And she has a no-nonsense, simple approach to really connecting meaningfully with the people in your life. She also speaks a lot about purpose and doing more of what makes you feel that sense of purpose and what gives you that inspiration in your life. And really doing that, being able to express yourself and be authentic and be you. And there's nobody else in the world who can do that other than you. There were so many takeaways from this episode, and it's the kind of thing that I could listen to again and again and again. I've got lots of clips on my Instagram, and you can visit my Instagram at dr.ozzy.jankovic. You can also make sure to sign up for my newsletter where I'll send you my socials and also highlights from all the episodes. You can do that at drozzy.co backslash in. I want to let you know that for the month of May, I'm rolling out 30 therapeutic days where I'm talking about the different therapeutic practices I'm doing in my own life to promote my own mental well-being. I really see this mental wellness as brain health, whatever we're calling it. It's so multifaceted, but I see it as a lifelong journey as something that we're always going to be investing in if we want to see those returns. So I do hope you'll join me on social media. I thank you so much for being here today. It's an investment in you. It's an investment in your community and the ripple effects that flow out into your community and out into the world are so positive. And and together we're going to get healthier and more well and live and work inspired by purpose. Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.